guns, when guns were first invented, they called them the great equalizer. Who were they good for? Who were they bad for? Well, this is one of the, these places where I have uh, changed my perspective. Um, I long believed the Second Amendment was the greatest error in our Constitution. I no longer believe that. I'm watching tyranny erupt in places that I never would have expected it. And I am wondering if the founders did not very wisely understand that this day would come and that it will be very hard for tyrants to um, succeed in America if the populace is armed. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arm Scholar Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be reacting to a conversation that happened between Patrick Bet David, who we've talked about on the channel in the past on some podcasts, uh, reacting to some of his points of view as far as firearms and, and gun control that um, he's advocated for in the past. And in this episode uh, of his podcast, he is having a conversation with a uh, evolutionary biologist, Brett Weinstein or Weinstein. Um, a lot of you probably know him because he became popular uh, because of his friendship with Joe Rogan. And he was on Joe Rogan's podcast quite quite often. And uh, he was kind of part of that intellectual dark web uh, movement with Joe Rogan and a lot of these other individuals. So here is a conversation between Patrick Bet David and Brett Weinstein, and they're talking about the Second Amendment and whether or not guns are good or bad. Guns. When guns were first invented, they called them the great equalizer. Who were they good for? Who were they bad for? Well, this is one of the, these places where I have uh, changed my perspective. Um, I long believed the Second Amendment was the greatest error in our Constitution. I no longer believe that. And that doesn't mean that I look past all of the terrible, unnecessary carnage that arises because guns are easily available. But I'm watching tyranny erupt in places that I never would have expected it. And I am wondering if the founders did not very wisely understand that this day would come and that it will be very hard for tyrants to um, succeed in America if the populace is armed. So again, I don't, I don't, I know people will. So that's an important point there that uh, Brett Weinstein is, is making. Now, what's interesting is I, I appreciate these types of conversations because no, by no means I think is Patrick Bet David a Second Amendment advocate. By no means do I think Brett Weinstein is a Second Amendment advocate. But at least here, the conversation with Brett is he's acknowledging in the past maybe he was anti-Second Amendment. He was anti-firearms. And because of some of the things that have happened in our nation recently, he has moved more towards pro-Second Amendment and seeing the utility of the Second Amendment and why the founders put it in place. Now, I think that is indicative of a lot of people in our society, um, especially with what really, uh, recently happened with a lot of the lockdowns and the social unrest. Um, during that period of time, I believe from like 2020 to current, we've seen so many new gun owners enter into the uh, exercising of their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Uh, we've seen 
the NIC system, the background check tracking, um, we've seen that the numbers of new firearms purchasers has risen dramatically by the millions. Uh, we've we've seen, you know, especially during those lockdown period of times, you know, there was uh, lines out the doors. I'm friends with a lot of gun store owners, and they said, you know, pretty much, especially here in California, they couldn't even keep some things on the shelves. And that was despite the fact that during that period of time, um, you had the government trying to shut down stores, trying to set, shut down the sale of firearms to prevent individuals from being able to purchase and possess firearms. Now, again, that's interesting because this is all into this context of what Brett is mentioning. Um, and it was that big consideration that finally popped up into a lot of people's minds about why the Second Amendment is so important, because a lot of people talk quite frequently about how the Second Amendment is only geared towards potentially hunting um, target shooting sports, and then sometimes they'll say self-defense. Now we do know, you know, self-defense is one of the core aspects of the second amendment, but there is another very important part of the second amendment, which is kind of the main purpose in my opinion, and that is to fight back against tyranny, either foreign or domestic. And that was one of the main considerations for why the second amendment was put in place. And again, the second amendment does not grant any rights. Instead, what it says is that the government cannot infringe on this fundamental human right. In my opinion, it is a God-given right. It exists whether or not it is ingrained in the second amendment or not. But the second amendment simply just says what the government shall not do. It shall not infringe on the individuals and individuals persons right to keep and bear arms. And also the reason why I say an individual's right to keep and bear arms, because as we know, the Second Amendment is an individual right. There are a lot of times, you know, you have the anti-gun side that tried to say that the Second Amendment is tied only to the militia, your, your service in the militia. And we know that's simply not true. Uh, the Supreme Court in Heller and McDonald and Caetano and recently in Bruin have clearly identified that there is an individual right to keep and bear arms, that that right exists both within your home and out in public, and that you have a right to carry. And it's interesting because I think what Brett Weinstein is reflecting here in his statements is how these circumstances of recent, you know, U.S. history, what we've been dealing with, has now pushed him to actually see the utility of your right to keep and bear arms, why it is a fundamental right. And I actually think it's more interesting because individuals like Brett Weinstein and I believe his brother and people like Jordan Peterson, why they became so prominently known and, and were kind of thrust into, you know, mainstream culture was because of the attacks that they had against them because of, you know, the First Amendment rights, you know, their First Amendment rights to free speech on campuses came under attack and they pushed back against it. And then you had liberal colleges uh, turn against them, even though they were academics. And then now, you know, they saw the utility of the First Amendment. They are advocates for the First Amendment. They saw how um, they didn't have access to their First Amendment rights and they were attacked by, you know, the anti-First Amendment people. And then I think this is even more important in the context of individuals like Brett Weinstein, his brother, and then people like Jordan Peterson's because, you know, they came into mainstream culture and pop culture uh, because of the issues they had being academics. Uh, all of them, I believe, were professors, uh, Jordan Peterson in Canada. And they spoke against, um, you know, what the campuses were doing. They advocated for free speech and the academia turned against them. And so they were, you know, became kind of champions of the First Amendment, of uh, freedom of speech. And I think that has then made, at least Brett Weinstein, in the context of the Second Amendment, see how important the Second Amendment is. And, you know, one of those main aspects we talk about quite often is that the Second Amendment protects the first and, and other rights as well. Um, and I think maybe he's seeing the utility in that because he's seen how tyrannical 
um, government has become, how academia has become, especially in the context against First Amendment. And then we saw recent events unfold in the government as far as lockdowns and other situations like that. So I think that has then pushed him towards seeing the fundamental right to keep and bear arms, how important it is, and maybe change some of his views. And I think that's what he's reflecting here in this discussion. The cost of having these weapons commonly available is huge and frankly completely unacceptable to me really so the cost so, so you you're you went from pro second amendment to now saying it would be better if we didn't have guns no no the other way yeah. okay got the it. Other so way. now the benefit of having it is good versus not having it even though i appreciate the tremendous unnecessary cost of these weapons being common right e even though i see that yeah. cost but i believe Nothing is, will be more destructive than if tyranny, uh, I mean, we've already seen lots of hints of tyranny in, in recent times in the U.S., but if tyranny takes over our, our nation and the West, yeah. we are in even more serious trouble. So I believe the harms that do come from these weapons being common will be dwarfed by the harms of uh, things like what we, you know, what we saw in the 20th century. So, so there's two important things that I want to point out there. So the first one he's talking about, uh, the cost, you know, the cost of the Second Amendment, the cost of your right to keep and bear arms, the fundamental right. Now, I, I've seen this not necessarily an argument, but it's been pointed to quite frequently by, you know, it's pointed to by anti-gun people and, you know, people who tend to be on the fence and even just pro Second Amendment people. They talk about, you know, the balancing of interest. Now, when we talk about the balancing of interest, we're not talking about the legal context of the balance of interest. Technically, um, you know, many of you who've watched my videos are probably familiar with uh, certain tier based scrutiny analysis when it comes to the legal context and what used to exist around the Second Amendment, where, um, you know, there was tiers of scrutiny, strict scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, rational basis. And oftentimes you would have the government put forward that when you're looking at the Second Amendment, you would use intermediate scrutiny. And that led to the balancing of interests where you would say, you know, you would weigh essentially the fundamental right against, you know, the public's interest or the harm to the public. And oftentimes the government would say, hey, we have this gun control law put in place. For example, they would say something like um, magazine capacities, restrictions on 10 rounds. They would say the public's interest of magazine capacities and stopping, you know, lethalities of shootings weighs heavily in the government's favor and cuts directly against your right to keep and bear arms under the Second Amendment. And therefore, the public interest would weigh out or would win out. And so that was kind of the more legal uh, public interest argument. But I think what Brett is pointing to here is a little bit something a little bit different. And it was addressed uh, by the Supreme Court and and uh, Justice Thomas in the recent New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin decision, which was a six to three win in favor of our right to keep and bear arms. And that opinion was authored by Justice Thomas. And in that decision, they talk about this concern, I guess, that Brett is putting forward here in this discussion where they talk about the potential um, societal concerns that could come along with the access to firearms and people having firearms and potential uh, deaths you know, related to firearms. And what Justice Thomas said in his Bruin opinion, and it's been said in other opinions as well, is that this weighing of the public's interest um, this weighing of the risk to benefit of the constitutional right of the fundamental right uh, has been done. It was done at the time of the founding. It was done in 1791 when the Second Amendment was ratified. The founders weighed those concerns and what they found, which is what Brett is is putting forward here in his discussion, is that the risk of not having your right to keep and bear arms and giving government potentially the um, ability 
to go tyrannical outweighs whatever harms potentially could result because of people being able to keep and bear arms. And so the founders weighed those interests. And that is why Justice Thomas, when he rejected the two-step approach in that Bruin opinion, when he rejected uh, you know, intermediate scrutiny, the public interest arguments, that is one of the main reasons he denied that type of approach is because he said, hey, the founders already weighed the public's interest. They did that at the founding era. They did that at the time they ratified the Second Amendment. So now is not the time for circuit courts and judges like in the Ninth Circuit and other circuits to then all of a sudden engage in the weighing of public interest and the two-step approach and all that. Instead, that analysis has already been done and therefore we reject that. And instead we go to, okay, when the founders weighed that interest, that is what's of most importance. And that's why we do text history and tradition, because the founders did that entire analysis. They weighed all those concerns at the time they ratified the Second Amendment. And now the burden is on the government to show whether or not their regulation or the restriction has any history and evidence that supports it back in 1791. And again, that is because of some of the things that Brett is is referencing or alluding to here in his conversation is that there are potential societal concerns. You know, nobody is denying that. Um, you know, there are bad people out in the world. There are evil people out in the world, and they will engage in harm with firearms or without them. Um, but that doesn't mean that the government then gets a blank check to regulate, you know, your ability to keep and bear arms however they want. Um, if they are going to engage in some sort of regulation, they have to show some sort of historical support for that. At least that is what the Supreme Court recently said in Bruin. And so that is kind of hitting on some of those public interest concerns and, you know, why the Second Amendment is so important, um, despite, you know, whatever societal concerns you would have um, because of how important it is to fight back against a tyrannical government, either foreign or domestic. And then also, I would say uh, he's hinting at something, you know, the, the lofty cost. Now, what he doesn't directly allude to anything here in this conversation, but I think what he's hinting at is probably some statistics that have been thrown around oftentimes in mainstream media where they talk about uh, firearms deaths or, or, you know, gun violence. You know, sometimes they'll use that buzzword gun violence. And, you know, you see a lot of statistics thrown around where, you know, especially one of the new talking points that they love to throw around is that firearms are the leading cause of death in children. And they're pointing to statistics like out, out of the CDC. And really, if you look at those statistics, you would find that it does not include children ages zero to one years old. And then it includes in um, individuals 18 to 19 years old. So it includes some adults and then excludes some you know, infants for, you know, to skew their statistics. And then even if you were to dig deeper into some of those statistics, you would see that um, most of the gun deaths related to individuals 14 to 18 is mainly gang related. And that is indicative of the general statistics. If you were to look at, you know, a lot of the statistics that they throw around for gun violence, um, which, again, is a political buzzword because it's not gun violence, it's just crime. Uh, what you would see quite often is, yes, it is gang related. A, a huge number of those deaths related to firearms is gang related. And then the actual over <laughs> overall number is heavily skewed because of suicide. So it's not what they love to put forward. So I would say, you know, a lot of these concerns that he's pointing to, you know, the lofty cost of the Second Amendment. If you really looked at those statistics and that cost that he's pointing to, it shows a lot of different things than 
probably what he would think, which maybe he's aware of this. I'm not sure. But a lot of the times, you know, when they think of things like so-called gun violence, they're thinking of school shootings and, and things of that nature. But it's really not. That is not those types of incidents do not make up a large number of those numbers um, that are thrown around. Who the invention of gun, the great equalizer, who did it hurt? Who did it benefit? Um, I think I don't want to pretend to be an expert on that question. It would take me a lot of thought <laughs> to to get to an answer. I I, well, I believe this is this is what happens when you ask a former professor yeah. of evolutionary biology. <laughs> very you rarely, get an very rarely do I have an answer more than a evolutionary biology scientist. Okay, That's but serious. who did it hurt and who did it? So I want to stop there, and and I I don't think it's I think this is important. I don't think this is Brett avoiding the question. Um, I actually appreciate that answer because. Quite often you will have people weigh into topics that they haven't necessarily thought heavily about or, you know, they'll weigh into topics or questions um, when they don't have the answer. And at least Brett here is being very candid and saying, you know, I haven't really thought about that. I don't know. I think it's kind of irresponsible for me to um, give you an answer on that. Now, again, I think that's important. And I wish sometimes you would have people on the left and the right, you know, be honest about some of their answers instead of just throwing something out there as fact and saying, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I haven't thought about that. But like, let me experiment with a hypothetical in this discussion form. Um, but I'm not saying this is an absolute truth. But a lot of times you will have people um, on the anti-gun side uh, quite often say, well, like, hey, let me put forward this answer. And this is the absolute truth. It's harming everybody. The cost is so great. Things like that. At least Brett is not saying that here, which I appreciate. Benefit, I think who it hurt the most were bullies, right? People that could just strong arm you physically or in any capacity. And who did it help? It helped weaker people. Sometimes you might say the weaker sex yeah. it helped women. Um, I think at the end of the day, if, if there's two very strong people, a man and a woman or a, a weaker man and a very strong man, yeah. and all of a sudden the weaker person has a gun... Essentially, that's the great equalizer. So I think it hurt bullies the most. And if you extrapolate that to governments and you take a look at, you know, bully governments, whether it's Iran today with the mullahs, whether it's in uh, Venezuela where you don't can have a gun or any place where the you know society or the uh, civilization or the people don't have a weapon to defend themselves, you're going to be at the whim of tyrannical governments and bullies. So to answer your question, I think it helped weaker people defend themselves. All right, but I want to I want to push back slightly. No, no, I'm way smarter than you. And I <laughs> so I think that is a good point. Um, I think what he's alluding to is two different things about the utility again of the Second Amendment. So they're really just two things. Uh, first, at the individual level, and then kind of at the societal and cultural level, and the you know pushback against government level. So on the individual level, you know we say it is the you know firearms are the great equalizer. It it gives, you know, lesser or weaker individuals, people of maybe less strength. Um, you know, a lot of times people will talk about, you know, women uh, gives them the ability to defend themselves against a bigger, stronger, um, faster individual. And absolutely does. It is the great equalizer. It is one of those tools that helps, you know, at the individual level, people to engage in self-defense. So absolutely it has a utility in that. And so like he's mentioning, uh, firearms definitely hurts bullies, like he's saying, uh, or criminals. Now, at the societal level and the cultural level, you know, one of the main importance of the Second Amendment, again, was to push back against tyrannical governments. And that is really who it's, you know, at the large scale, who's, who it is intended to hurt the most. It is intended to be one of those natural checks 
against tyranny. It's one of those natural checks against our own government and then also foreign governments. You know, a lot of times you'll hear the quote thrown around from when the Japanese generals, which there's a lot of ambiguity whether or not it was actually said, um, but they talk about, you know, how you could never invade the U.S. because there would be a gun or a rifle behind every blade of grass. And it is just one of those natural checks against, you know, foreign invaders, against, you know, foreign tyranny, but also a natural check on our own tyranny, because at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment, um, when the Second Amendment was put in place, you know, we had just come off the Revolutionary War. We had just fought against a tyrannical king, against a tyrannical government. And so our founders and our people knew the importance of protecting ourselves at an individual level and then also at a large scale level against tyranny. And so that is really who it hurts the most. It hurts, yes, bullies at an individual level and then that broader societal level. It prevents government. It is a natural check on government overreach. And that's why governments don't like it so much. That's why you have anti-gun states and anti-gun politicians like Newsom um, want to restrict our rights as much as possible. That's why you have certain presidents uh, try to go after our rights. That's why you see other foreign governments uh, try to completely get rid of firearms who engage, you know, Australia with their buybacks and, and other nations with their national registries and their bans on the possession. And it is just the way that they can kind of um, go have really to subjugate their citizenry. So in one of the great things about the U.S. is we do have so many firearms. We understand our fundamental right to keep and bear arms and how important it is to um, essentially put a check on our government, on our politicians and those people who would like to potentially subjugate us. <laughs> Please. Um, no, I here's I, I believe your argument is correct as far as it goes. Yes. And the question is, is it correct in the end? Mm -hmm. Right. You can take that same argument and you could apply it to nuclear weapons. And you could say, actually, what we want to do is have every country be armed with nuclear weapons because then big countries won't bully small countries. If you did that, the nuclear war that we will ultimately face will be that much sooner, right? Because you have that many itchy, itchy trigger fingers that could initiate the thing. And so I'm not convinced that even, I mean, look, we, we saw that nuclear weapons did um, produce peace. It worked. In the end, is that their net effect? We can't measure that because we're not at the end. So I don't know what the net effect of guns is. I do believe the effect you're describing is real and important. So two things I would love to have said, you know, to Brett in response to that is that, you know, he talks about how the access to nuclear weapons, um, maybe if you made that access to all nations, maybe it gives people more itchier fingers because of this concept of, you know, people having arms um, potentially would make them at a greater risk. Um, to engage in some sort of harmful conduct. Now, this is something that's also we've heard said quite you know, frequently at a lower level um, when it comes to people with, you know, concealed carry or, you know, a lot of people are concerned or you hear a lot of people on the left or people who are just not super familiar with firearms where they say, you know, if I carry a firearm, I'm more prone to violence or I'm more prone to potentially use that or I don't trust myself with that. And oftentimes, I know people, myself included, when you start carrying concealed and you have a firearm on yourself for the first time, it tends to be the quite opposite, where you appreciate the risk inherent with you concealed carrying, with you having a firearm with something that could, you know, cause, you know, significant harm to others. And if you use it, it could lead to the death of someone else. Um, so you appreciate that more and intend and it tends to make you more cognizant, more aware of your situation. It helps you to avoid situations um, greater. You know, you won't go hang out in 
crime-ridden areas late at night. You will completely avoid those situations. And, and even in his conversation there, when he hints and talks about, you know, nuclear weapons, how we actually have seen quite a bit of peace because of the access of nuclear weapons. Uh, now, now, that's not me saying that I wish every single nation had a nuclear weapon, but I think, you know, some one of those things he's overlooking is that, yes, you know, access to certain arms tends to make you appreciate that bad things could occur if you have to use them. So then it makes you actually not use them as much and, you know, resort to other things, which is like avoidance or or other types of self-defense or, um, you know, being better at your conversation skills. And, you know, so we're talking about an individual level to a large scale level. And I think that's what we've even seen at a large scale level, you know, avoidance of certain situations, um, more conversation because we know the risk inherent with certain arms. Now, going back to some of his other conversations when he's talking about now, going back to some of the other conversation when he's saying, you know, if certain nations would have access to nuclear weapons, maybe that makes them more prone to use them. And I would say, you know, one of the things that cuts against that also is the individual who has access to smaller arms. Now, a lot of times you'll hear people on the left and people like Biden say, well, you know, the individuals in no way could ever protect themselves against the F-15 um, or other types of military weapons. We'll just simply bomb them. And, you know, they'll, you'll hear them throw out things like that. But at the individual level, uh, you know, the ability to keep and bear arms is a natural check on that type of tyranny where maybe your government decides, you know, they want to go. Uh, fairly crazy and decide that they want to drop nukes on people um, and the individuals and their individuals being arms is a natural check on that. And so, no, do I think we should just <laughs> give um, some of these nations blindly nuclear weapons or let them build that up? Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not someone at a high international level of a foreign policy or anything like that. But I think one of the things being overlooked here is if the individuals have the right to keep and bear arms, if they're able to freely express and use the right to keep and bear arms, that is also a natural check on those governments engaging in that wide scale harm that Brett is concerned about if certain nations have nuclear weapons. So just some of the things I thought of when I'm listening to him speak about that specific aspect. I mean, that I would say, I can't believe I'm pushing back on you right now, is that the, the, the capacity for these nuclear weapons in the wrong hands could literally end Earth as we know it. Mm -hmm. Whereas a gun or an M16, yes, there could be some carnage, but you're not literally blowing up the world. So nuclear weapons, to a certain extent, is you know that threshold where it's like, don't cross that line. Brett, you can't let a playboy argue with you. <laughs> this guy's his resume. It's, it's just it's not. You, you, you're a former professor of evolutionary biology. He's a He's a form of an evolutionary biology. There is biology there, but it's different. School kind of in the Miami science. nightlife yeah. scene. It's a different. <laughs> but, but let's, education. let's go through that. Let's go through that. So okay, so guns, specific guns, not nuclear guns, benefited. You know, the average person's like, listen, that guy's been bullying the city. This time he comes around, hey, you can't do this anymore. You got to get out of my house. Okay, shit, I'm not messing with that family. I'm out because I got a gun. Fantastic, right? It's like when you got the sign in the backyard, beware. There's a pit bull, a German <laughs> shepherd, and beware, and there is no dog. But that sign itself gets some people to say, I don't want to mess with that place. Yeah, so I think that's a good point. You know, I, I haven't agreed with a lot of the points that Patrick has made as far as firearms, but, you know, firearms are a great deterrent. Now, that doesn't mean you should brandish your firearms as simply as a deterrent. Deterrent if you're pulling, you know, he's saying, like, you know, you just pull your gun maybe on someone who's a bully. 
um, to deter them. I don't, definitely don't agree with that and would never recommend that legally. Uh, you need to understand the legal ramifications of self-defense and understand, you know, when it's appropriate to, for you to pull and use your firearm um, because of, you know, the specific laws related to self-defense, you know, imminence, proportionality, a fear of great bodily death or injury. So you need to understand those laws, your, your castle doctrine in your own your own state, your uh, right, you know, your duty to retreat, your stand your ground laws. You know, every state is different in those regards for self-defense. But, you know, a firearm is an amazing deterrent. And a lot of the times the statistics as far as defensive firearms use don't take into account, you know, times that firearms were pulled, um, but weren't necessarily fired or didn't lead to any lethality, but did help to deter that situation. Um, you know, we we know by some of the numbers that have been um, excluded or removed from the CDC and some other statistics that there's about a million to 1.5 million, I think, uh, defensive uses of firearms every single year, um, which is important. You know, that that is a big deterrent. And if you have a society or and we actually see it at a, at a different level, you know, you have certain states where firearms are more prevalent. You see that certain crimes in certain areas are significantly less than other states where they have heavy anti-gun policies and, you know, they have a lot of gun control laws like California. You see crimes have are, are rising significantly. And then, you know, in anti-gun cities like L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, you see that the crime rates are so significantly high because there is not that fear that Patrick is mentioning. There is not that fear that, hey, if I break into this home, you know, potentially the person in that home will have a firearm and be able to defend themselves and will defend themselves. And then we also see, you know, just crime in general right now in San Francisco and other areas where there is just not a fear of criminal prosecution at all. Um, and so people are engaging in more criminal conduct. So I think that is a solid point by Patrick is that a firearm is a natural deterrent. And that's also one of the reasons why it's so important. There's yep. a study showing that there's a percentage of people that don't mess with a house that just has that sign. Whether there is a real dog or not, it still helps yeah. you to create some safety. Nuclear, fine. Internet, you know, a lot of people were worried about Internet at the beginning. You have radio, you have TV, you have all this stuff, right? Who did, who did YouTube scare? Who did uh, Anchor or, you know, Spotify uh, benefit and hurt. If you if we think about who YouTube and Spotify and these places hurt, it hurt mainstream media. It scared the crap out of the bullies that have been telling everybody one side of the story. Now you got to sit there and listen to the number one podcast in the world, Joe Rogan, telling you a different way because he's got a guest that got you thinking. Now we're going out there doing research, going to Google, which at one point we were concerned. So yeah, there in the last point, I think Patrick is once again, just hinting at, you know, who does it really hurt? It hurts the government the most. He talks about, you know, the free flow of the First Amendment and, and new access to new media. Who does that hurt the most? It hurts mainstream media and, and the government who wants to control the mainstream media um, and be able to control the narrative. You know, that's why, you know, these new sources of new media things that we're doing here on YouTube and other people are doing on YouTube and on podcasts and things of that nature, you know, it brings what, you know, the government wants, it puts them at risk. And so that's why they want to, would further want to control it and regulate. And there's been discussions about that, but you know, that also plays into the second amendment. You know, why would the government want to restrict your right to keep bear arms? Because it directly cuts against their ability to control um, what they want to control. They want to have the power. You know, government has always wanted power. You know, politicians want power. They want more control and that's never going to change. And, and that's why the second amendment is so important. So, you know, when they're talking about, you know, you know the whole discussion is are guns good or bad and, and Brett's talking about the importance of the Second Amendment. That is why the Second Amendment is so important. You know, we talk a lot about self-defense. 
Yes, self-defense is important at an individual level, but self-defense, yes, it is one of those core aspects of the Second Amendment that you know the Supreme Court has acknowledged, but also one of the other big parts of the Second Amendment is to fight back against tyranny, to push back against the government, foreign and domestic, to prevent them from going tyrannical and, you know, affecting you and other people. So I appreciate this conversation. I think this was an interesting conversation between Brett and Patrick. I don't think that they are super heavy pro Second Amendment people. I, I know Patrick has said, you know, he's very pro Second Amendment, but I don't agree with all of his stances as far as him advocating for certain gun control. But, you know, it, at least Brett, what he's reflecting here in this conversation is how he used to be someone who was you know, potentially anti-Second Amendment. And because of how things have developed in our nation of, of recent history, it has pushed him to understanding at least a little bit the importance of the Second Amendment and potentially acknowledging that, yes, it is important and we shouldn't be placing more restrictions on it. Um, you know, whether or not that stance is going to stand, you know, we saw a lot of people during the lockdown period where they went out and purchased firearms, you know, people who were anti-gun, maybe Democrats, liberals who were always advocating for gun control. They you know, got scared during that period of time, they went out and purchased their first firearm. And then now that everything has kind of calmed down a little bit, you know, they've kind of reverted back to the same old, same old. And my hope would be that people like Brett and maybe some of those other people um, would understand or at least keep in mind how they felt at that time and and understand really how important it is because we saw how fragile things really are and how things can drastically change and how important it is really for you to be able to defend yourself, your family in those types of situations. So again, really interesting conversation. Um, I will link the full video down below. Um, it's really only about seven minutes, but if you wanted to watch it without you know, commentary, I'll leave that down below. And again, thank you guys so much for all of your support with the podcast. Um, you know, It's been doing better than I could ever thought. If you guys have any specific people you would like me to talk to, or maybe if you want me to go talk to some of these people, maybe reach out to them. You know, I don't really have access to any of these people, um, but I just wanted to in insert some of my commentary you know, coming from the pro 2A side. But again, thank you guys so much for all of your support for the podcast. Uh, if you like this video, if you like this episode of the podcast, make sure you like, comment, subscribe, hit the notification bell, share this video. All those things help these videos to get to more people, to reach more people, to educate more people and help us to grow this conversation around the Second Amendment. So as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe and never forget this nation was built by armed scholars and this nation will be maintained by armed scholars.